Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And uh, I'm happy to say we continue our run of legendary authors. On this episode, Twitter's former head of European operations, Bruce Daisley. And he's got a new book out called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. And uh, he's also got a wonderful podcast of the same name. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. It's a very fun conversation about some of his hacks for more joy at work. And uh, we could certainly use more joy, period, right now. And (laughs) this conversation is a little bit of ADHD theater. And we talk about everything from laughter to digital relationships to walking meetings, uh, Chinese sci-fi and a whole lot more. Uh, Pay close attention to our discussion about why you should turn notifications off on your phone. Uh, Bruce is fun, smart, and uh, very quick-witted, and I think you'll enjoy hanging out with his brain. Now, as you know, every company needs visibility and control if they're going to succeed, and that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. NetSuite is number one in cloud ERP. As a matter of fact, NetSuite is used by uh, over uh, 20,000 companies as their standard cloud business system from over 200 countries. And with NetSuite, you will always stay on top of your seminal numbers, critical things like your cash position, your cash flow, orders, accounts receivable, inventory accounts payable, uh, human resources, and a whole lot more. Visit netsuite.com slash different to uh, get your free demo and your free guide, The Seven Key Strategies to Grow Profits. That's netsuite.com slash different. Uh, I also want to thank you for your uh, support of Lockhead on Marketing. Recently, we hit number one in both marketing and business on Apple Podcasts, and uh, I want to thank you very much. And if you are in marketing or you're an entrepreneur or CEO, check it out wherever you get legendary podcasts or lockhead.com. And uh, I'll tell you, I I think data has never been more strategic than it is right now. And my friends at Splunk are doing amazing things. They are the category queens and category kings of data to everything. And they help you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Learn how to turn data into doing at splunk.com slash D2E, as in data to everything. That's splunk.com. D, the number two, E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. I'm convinced that there'll be one day where someone just says, right, press the button. All the power stations go down for the, for the month. And then what happens? Then what happens? I mean, you see what happens on a plane when the Wi-Fi goes down for 15 minutes, people lose their shit. Well, let me tell you, you know, like not long ago now, you know, this isn't Rodney King, LA riots. This is not long ago now in London, about seven years ago, there were London riots and, uh, and people were smashing stores. And I, you know, I live in North London, which is leafy and safe and, and, you know, like very conservative with the small C and yet there were people marauding around because it had become lawless because there was no way for the police you know the the police is like the banking system it's confidence trick there's never enough police to actually 
police the system. You just require everyone to behave. But then you just realize, wow, at any moment, we're inches away from anarchy. And the only thing that's stopping us, my partner's Lebanese, and she was trying to understand the Lebanon's economy has collapsed in the last three months. And she said, I don't understand. And I said, well, look, the whole of the banking system is a confidence trick. There's never enough money. But as long as everyone believes there's enough money, then it ca- carries on. And the whole of modern society is a confidence trick. As long as we believe that society's safe, it's safe. As soon as that illusion goes, so as soon as those power stations go, oh, my goodness. Pandemonium. That's the zombie apocalypse right. that we're all having to get ready for, Bruce. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You've, you've written this great feel-good book, and now we're off with the zombie apocalypse. So maybe you should write a book about preparing for that. Where in California are you? I'm in beautiful Santa Cruz, California. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. I'm in London. In London itself. Yeah. So fairly, it's sort of, you know, the, the London is still a city that you can walk around. You know, I used to, um, I used to run to work sort of, uh, so, you know, London, I, I mean, I, I'm three miles from the city center, which in London is relatively close to the city center. Yeah. And I, I, I'm trying to think if there's an exception to this, but in my mind, all the great cities in the world, the cities I love to be in are, are inherently walking cities. You can just mm. walk out your front door and get lost and meander around and enjoy yourself. I think that's why um, quite often European people experience like a real dissonance when they come to US cities, because aside from somewhere like New York or maybe Boston, or Washington to some extent, but you need a car to get around. And, and, you know, I think most Europeans, especially when they're first presented San Francisco, you can walk around, but when they're first presented with a place like LA and people are like, where's the city center? And, and they're told there's no city center. And they're like, well, where do I go? People say that's, it's just a whole series of metropolitan in a lot of traffic. Right, right. <laughs> so a lot of people leave California thinking, I don't get LA. What What was that? Yeah, that's yeah. it. Walk, walking around cities is definitely something that I particularly enjoy myself. Yeah, and I think London's one of the great walking cities. And of course, mm. the other thing that's happened over the last, I don't know, you tell me, maybe 30 years or so. The, I, I know in your book, you talk about diversity at work, but one of the things I love about London today is one of the most diverse eating cities in the world. Really? Yes. The thing that we used to suffer from was people used to say British cuisine was was garbage. And in fact, what we've definitely done in the last 20 years is appropriate everyone else's cuisine and fuse it in a in often sort of chaotic mess. But yeah, so it's, you can eat whatever, whatever yeah. food you, in you want different in a country that. every night. You know, the other city that's like that, and it's not really one of my favorite places, but another crazy place in the United States for eating is Las Vegas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's great food in Vegas now. Yeah. Well, I, I think the Vegas mentality has always been to to be magpies, right? To sort of bit, borrow and steal from everywhere. So you can see the, the Eiffel Tower and then you can see a bit of everything, right? Yeah. They, 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 you could go walk the streets of Venice after seeing the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> you don't need to go anywhere else. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What time is it there, Chris? It's a 7.11 in the a.m. Okay. Good work. Yeah. And that would make right. it what time for you? It's 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Yeah. Yeah. See, but I'm an early riser. I'm, I'm up most days around five. 
Right, okay. Yeah. This is not part of one of those hyperproductive, uh, you know, like you're up exercising at five, then you're doing your brain exercises. It's not that, is it? Are you? No, I'm not that guy. I, I, that's the guy that in some other life, I think maybe I should be from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get up and I, uh, I read and I do a little bit of work and I drink, you know, somewhere between half and a full pot of coffee and I ease into the day. Oh, good work. Good. Well, g- g- thank you for giving me your early start. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, thank you so much. And thank you for writing your, I, I think your book, and I mean this in the most laudatory way, is very fun. Oh, good. Good. But that, like, I, um, I, I don't feel the same as me, Chris. I sort of, the, op- the best version of me, there's a version of me that buys books and reads the books. And then there's a version of me that kind of loves bookstores and, and acquires books through, optimism and then just piles them up and when the pile gets too big the pile is moved somewhere else because future bruce is definitely going to read all of those books all over those books <laughs> and it's and like, so have you ever noticed you're like your netflix watch list your wish list or whatever we put shit on that list I at least i do and we never watch that shit when's this gonna happen i've got i, I don't know a- I carry a notebook around with me that's just out of reach now because when I'm out with people, if you get your phone out, I think it sometimes changes the chemistry. You know, if you and I are sitting having a beer or having a coffee or whatever, I pull my phone out, you get your phone out. So I carry a notebook and write it down. The back of my notebook has so many TV shows that people have said, you've got to watch this, you've got to watch this. And, you know, I I don't even go to that page. Like, you know, I'll be sitting there thinking I want to watch something. It's just not enough hours in the day. Or even when you... Like you want something new, you go, I'll go to my watch list once a quarter or whatever. And I'll go, ah, I don't feel like any of that shit right now. I, I, why did I put it on the list? I liked it at the time. I thought, of, I think it's the, um, I don't know, maybe it's like the, the version of you that you wish you yeah. were or whatever. Amazing documentaries or whatever. <laughs> exactly that. Exactly that. Well, I end every year and I often sort of look at the, the best movies of the year list. And I think, oh, I've not seen any of those next year. Next year, it's the year of movies. And of course, you know, we, we get into January, I've, I've watched half a movie, and each year I tell myself, next year is the year of movies. You know, it's, it's, I've gotten so weird with movies anymore. I, I don't watch a lot of new movies. Same. But that's what, in my head, I'm like, I, I, occasionally I'll watch a movie and I'll go, wow, I really enjoyed that. It was sort of, it was a bit more thoughtful than, a 40 minute TV show. I'm like, I need to watch more movies. Yeah. This is my answer. I need to watch more movies. I never watch any more movies, but never I never watch any movies. Does it feel like too much of a commitment? Why, why don't we watch movies anymore? What I worry about with me is I worry that my brain is atrophying and I can't concentrate on movies. Right. And you're there. And, and plus in our lifetime, Chris movies have got a lot more complicated. If you ever go very back, complicated, if you go back and watch Back to the Future or Ghostbusters, the plot is <laughs> the plot of Back to the Future is guy goes back in time, disrupts his mum and dad's future relationship, sorts that out, plays guitar for three songs, plays guitar for three songs in a movie, and then goes back to the future. Yeah, it was like an hour and a half. Three songs in the middle of that film. It's like, you know, movies now, they 
they, three hours long involve at least three to four continents of action. You know, it's incredible. So so complex for my mind. I think it. You tell me, but I I think there was a tipping point in complexity with the Matrix. Mm. Because I can remember trying to watch the Matrix on a plane at least five times. Now I've been known to have whiskey on a plane, and and so I, I could never quite get through the Matrix, and I would get lost in it. I don't know if it was being tired or too much whiskey or other distractions on the plane, but I have never sat through that whole movie because it, it was just there was a lot of cubby holes and and rabbit. <laughs> trails and stuff in that movie my matrix was the usual suspect have you ever seen that film oh yeah one of my favorites that uh, so that one lost you it just it hurt my brain so much the first i went to see it in the theater i fell asleep and then yeah. i i got it out on a dvd rental when that was still a thing and and just couldn't understand it was, like, it was too complex for my brain and i think Who the that fuck was is kaiser sose <laughs> Someone even said to me, yeah, Kaiser Soze, the only person who says he exists is Kevin Spacey. Maybe it's like, oh, now you're giving me, I, I never understood the complexity already. Now you're giving me additional complexity blowing my mind. on top of complexity. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I understand that. And I think, I don't know, maybe over time we want things a little more simple. <laughs> I don't know. When I sit down, you know, to consume stuff like that, I just want to be entertained now. Like I just, I want it to be fun. I don't want it to be heavy. I, I don't know. I feel like there's enough heaviness and shit in life. When mm. I sit down to consume something on the television, I want to consume something fun. I watch a lot of comedy, stand-up comedy. I, I, I want it to be light. It's interesting the era we're in, though, right? Because if you think back to, you know, the 90s, Seinfeld, Friends, like some Frasier, the back end of Cheers, there was a vintage era of comedy. And for me, I loved the escapism of that. When I was younger, I used to... I used to celebrate any new sitcom that was coming. It's like, I've, I've got to watch this comedy. I love this. These days, there's a lot. I mean, we get Brooklyn Nine-Nine. We get, but there's not as much comedy created. There are a few. Modern Family, I think, has just got has got a bit better again. But, you know, comedy seems to be a smaller part of our entertainment offering now than it's been before. Well, and actually, as you're saying this, I'm thinking also about movies in the 80s and maybe early 90s. There was, you know, Eddie Murphy was on fire. Mm. Steve Martin was doing incredible movies. You know, there was a lot of funny movies. What were those? Uh, what was the Mel Gibson cop movies called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lethal Weapon. Those were sort of comic-y movies and yeah. certainly the Beverly Hills Cop stuff was funny yeah. and even action films like um, Die Hard it was, it was a comedic element absolutely you know, so, anyway there was a lot of comedy where's where's Steve Martin and Martin Short 2.0 yeah. I mean I guess we had a run with Adam Sandler for a while but a lot of those movies aren't that funny no, that's it. I, I did. I, I'd liked this when Seth Rogen first came on the scene. He's sort of he's things super bad and Pineapple Express, and they they were they were fun. But yeah, and no, I agree yeah. with you. I love that sort of escapist, almost slapsticky humor. I love that. Yeah, like remember Inspector Clouseau and shit like that. Yeah, that's of right. Monty Python, of course. Let me tell you though, I don't know if you've gone back to it recently. That Inspector Clouseau and those Pink Panther movies, they haven't dated well. Yeah, I think they don't. They don't work today, do they? No. The the 
that our concept of time was so much more forgiving and so much more patient then. So, you know, a scene, like, sometimes a one shot, a one camera scene would take five minutes to unfold. And now, you know, you'd, with the best will in the world, we'd be itching for our phone, we'd be itching for some payoff. So those, <laughs> those movies, even though the comedic performances in them are so delightful, they just don't reward. I tried to get my kids to watch Pink Panther movies because they lived in such a wonderful, nostalgic space in my mind that, you know, I knew that we were going to be mainlining happiness. I knew that for two hours we were going to be beaming with delight. And yet we watched it and, you know, and you realize I'm holding my kids hostage here. They, they, there's nothing about them that wants to sit and watch this, but I'm trying You're to impose, torturing them. That's right. I'm trying to impose my nostalgia on them. <laughs> it's true. Uh, but I do think, you know, on the flip side, we do, uh, we are living in a golden age of, of comedy. I think Netflix deserves a lot of credit mm. for bringing mm. a, a stand-up comedy in particular to Very just much a so. level that I don't think we've ever seen it. Very much so. I mean, there was, I don't know if you remember that vintage era of when, when video VHS cassettes first came out. And so you had coincidentally Robin Williams. I don't know if you ever remember he's, uh, his Met special, which was unbelievable. Then Eddie Murphy. Is that the one where he does the riff on uh, the game of uh, of uh, golf? I forget. Is that where he his did, famous golf routine comes in? He did He did two of them in very short. Probably there was a, one with a carriage on the stage. like the, a, a, But um, his performances and Eddie Mor Murphy's performances were so remarkable. And Richard Pryor was just around a bit. But yeah, and since then, that 80s, I think this is the next golden era of that stand-up. I mean, there's probably 20 big comedians you could name off the top Absolutely. of your head if you really started to think of it. Like, like, Absolutely. And a lot of female comedians that are selling out, mm. you know, huge theaters and shit. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what about this book you've written? <laughs> yeah. Do you mind if I start quizzing you on it? Not at all. Not at all. So okay. uh, I've written this book. Shall I sort of give you the pressy? So uh, I've written this book, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, which is I, as, as I mentioned before, the optimistic version of me buys books and, and doesn't read them. And so I wrote this book, which was intentionally a very short episodic series of interventions that anyone can stage in their office, in their workplace. And, um, and clearly, you know, most of us, most of us, unfortunately, do full-time work. And, and there's probably a distant memory in many of our minds, which is that we once, we loved our job or we, we, we love some part of our job, but it's in the distant memory. And I wanted, I found myself, truthfully, I'll, I'll sort of describe for you. I found myself, I, uh, working at Twitter, had been sort of uh, one of the first European employees at Twitter, and we'd had wonderful time. It'd been uh, an incredible workplace culture people said it was their favorite jobs and other people would come from other offices saying wow what a wonderful place and then something and i think it was something i did something went wrong and the culture went from being this being this party that you never wanted to end to being this party that you wish you'd never set, left the house to go to one year we had 40 percent of our team leaving one year and so i don't know if you've ever had that situation but each work week becomes like a game of chicken. You you look at each colleague thinking, who's resigning next? Who's quitting next? 
And I found myself thinking, what can I do to fix this? You know, I've something's gone wrong. We've had a misstep along the way. And what can I do to fix this? And um, and so I I started reading scientific papers and research papers and, and things that academics have done about studying work, none of which actually reaches people who do jobs. And I thought, right, I'm going to write. <laughs> isn't, that, I'm, isn't that useful then? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like the first time I, I heard the science of open offices, open plan offices, I'd thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm struggling to get anything done here. But obviously, open offices are better than anything else. And then the, you see the science of open plan offices. And the number one thing that changes when people go to open plan offices is they, uh, their dislike of their colleagues goes up 75%. So people end up hating their colleagues. Oh, hold, hold on a second there, Bruce. So if I'm in an office that has walls and shit, offices, standalone, separate offices, and then I go to this open concept thing, data says I'm going to hate my coworkers 75% more. Is that what yeah, you just said? That's it. Yeah, that's it. So maybe previously you were in an office with not not necessarily one or two of you, but maybe there's seven or eight of you in a sort of small huddled uh, office. Then you go to an open office and yeah, the, the number one thing that goes up, goes up about 70 something percent is the that you'll hate your colleagues. And people, you know, you, you'll often hear people saying, you know, I just can get nothing done at work. I feel like the only time I can get something done is if I go in super early or stay super late. And you're not alone in thinking that. Well, the first time I saw the science on that, I was like, oh, wow, this is incredible. My whole my whole working career for the last decade or so has been in these open offices. And yet no one has ever given me the user's guide saying, this is why you're finding work so exhausting and so wretched. So in the spirit of that, I thought, oh, I, I learned all these extraordinary things. And I thought, I'm going to try and commit them to paper in a way that even if you only read one chapter, one 10-page chapter, one 15-page chapter, and you Xeroxed it and threw it at your boss or took it to a team offsite and said, look, I wonder if we could discuss this, then I was hoping that even just that one intervention might marginally improve people's work. So the idea, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm delighted you said it was entertaining. The, the idea is to try and sort of use it as a, uh, is to try and make it an entertaining read that's a gateway to people feeling like they can get back to enjoying their job a little bit more. Well, I, I think mission accomplished on a number of fronts. First of all, it's clear, even uh, I think if somebody, I, you know, because I first uh, got to know you a little through your podcast, so I sort of had a sense of who you were in your voice uh, when the book showed up. But I think even if somebody didn't have a sense of you, you're sort of, there's a playfulness and there's a, a silliness and there's that, you know, and, and you British have this way better than Americans or Canadians. I think, I think by definition, you're much less likely to take yourself seriously. And maybe that's an over uh, a stereotype or whatever, but anyway, that comes across. And then to your point on the way you've organized this thing and what's the subtype 30 hacks for bringing joy to your life. So you have these very short chapters. And what I love is you have a legendary table of contents because it's built for people with ADHD who can just skim through this thing and you could just pick off little pieces, which is exactly how I read it. Absolutely. I just picked it off bit by bit. 
Well, my, my feeling was that exactly as we've said, you know, my feeling is that we buy these things in optimism, but the we need to then deal the, with the reality of life. So, for example, my favorite part of the book, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, is that um, I used to have a boss who probably not unlike some bosses we've all had along the way. He said one day he saw a few of us laughing. And he wandered past. He, he pulled me aside and he, he said, now's not the time to be seen laughing. And so there's a chapter in the book about laughter. And my feeling is, I wonder if people will buy this book and maybe they can't bring themselves to read a, a book about work. I mean, it's bad enough that we spend all day thinking about work because we're at work. But then when you come home, do you really want to read a, work, a, a book about work? But I thought maybe if they read that chapter on laughter, then they might they might find something that gives them a degree of hope. And then they think, oh, well, maybe I'll try this one. I'll try a walking meeting next. Or how about I try this one? And and my, my view is that it's these little incremental steps that maybe all of us can improve our work and the team culture with the people we work with and the work that we're in. And we can improve these things maybe sort of by little baby steps so gradually, incrementally, we make work marginally better for ourselves. Well, and there's so many, uh, you know, normally I'm a guy that wants to talk about exponential and this and that, but there are some really fun little different ones. So you mentioned walking meeting, uh, and I've always loved this idea, but um, t tell me why you wanted walking meetings in the book. Yeah, because um, so the book, weirdly, because the, the book's really about team culture and workplace culture and how we can improve our teams. But it starts with these 12 personal interventions. And it's largely because I think we're experiencing certainly, you know, the, we hear about it more and more. We're experiencing a burnout epidemic where it might be our best friend. It might be our partner. It might be us. We're feeling more exhausted by work than we've ever been in history. And that's measurable it's demonstrable the world health organization has has remarked upon it so there is something that's different and so my personal feeling was even though the book is about how can we make our team better and maybe you're maybe you're not even the boss maybe you're not even the, the manager but you just aspire to be uh, i wanted to give some science on that but i felt before i could even do that i needed to help people feel less personally overwhelmed by their jobs and so these are really simple interventions. The number one thing, it seems it seems so trivial that any of us can do to feel less frazzled by our jobs is to turn notifications off on our phone. And, you know, you might say, why on earth would that improve my team culture? But by turning notifications off on your phone, the guy who did this research, he asked people, he asked a, a large group of people to turn their phone notifications off for a week and no one would do it. And so he said, okay, he was about to give up his research. He said, and when you say notifications, Bruce, uh, do you mean when you get like a voicemail or a text message or a social or all notifications of all time? Well, he, he wanted all of them turned off. So emails, socials, you know, LinkedIn's, like anything. He wanted them all turned off. People wouldn't do it. Okay. So then he said, okay, how about you turn them off for a day? People agreed. He got enough people to turn off their notifications for a day. Two years later, he went back to that group of people and half of them still had their notifications turned off. Now, they might have ad adapted it slightly that they left messages or iMessage I on there or they might have left their socials on there, but most of them had their email notifications off. And the reason why is because we know we don't need our 
phones to remind us that we've got more emails. We we know that they're, they're there, but the mere presence of those notifications seems to inject a little bit of cortisol. It seems to inject the stress hormone into our bodies, and it just creates this continual awareness of, of our work. So look, turning notifications off, it almost seems too ridiculous, too trivial to mention. But in the spirit of that, walking meetings, one of the most effective ways that if you if you've got to have a meeting with a colleague then to go for a walk for it seems to improve our energy and seems to improve our thinking so we become more creative we become more imaginative we, we become sort of measurably measurably more collaborative so my my personal feeling was i started the book with 12 of these personal interventions what one of them is taking a lunch break and that seems I mean, you know, it's, if, if it hardly feels like a new innovation. Well, it seems quaint, though, doesn't it? Because it does. most, most people just pound through lunch at their desk while they're banging on emails or in a exactly meeting. Exactly that. Exactly. Eating lunch al desco. And uh, we, we, <laughs> <laughs> we find ourselves... Oh, you're a funny one, aren't you there, Bruce? <laughs> <laughs> we find ourselves... Uh, doing these things. Why? Because you know that anyone who's eating with a sandwich in their hand is thinking, if I can get to the end of this inbox, I can leave work on time. And here's the strange thing. It, it doesn't work like that. What happens is we, we become a little bit more fatigued. It's a bit like, you know, if we asked Usain Bolt not to run a hundred meters, but to run the marathon, he wouldn't look anywhere near the, the dynamic figure that we see him as now. And yet, when it comes to applying our energy to our jobs, we forget that we need to put energy back in the tank as well as deplete it. And so I think that's the critical so is that, thing. Is that what you think the real issue is here, is that because of mobile technology primarily, and maybe other things, you'll tell me, but we're, you know, this idea that we would have more productivity because we'd have more downtime and, and we'd be able to use that downtime with our technology and this and that and the other. The reality is we're all now chained to our job because it's, it's always in our pocket and sort of the blurring between work and life. It's all just one thing now. And as a result, you know, many of us don't get a break from it. Precisely that. Here's the, here's the thing. Our, our jobs do serve a function in our self-esteem. People who have jobs live longer than people who are long-term unemployed. They play probably far more than we would sometimes like to admit. They play more of a role in shaping our pride, our identity, our sense of having accomplished something than, than probably many of us would, would like to acknowledge. And here's the thing. As a result, because most of us want to do innately, we want to do a good job. We want to, to, to look good in other people's eyes. The fact that email and our work now follows us round. And look, I love my phone. I adore it. I love the things it affords to me. You know, like 20 years ago, Man, if someone had told you the magic you could do with your phone, you'd be, you'd be enchanted with just the mere thought of it. It's like casting sorcery. But um, but you know, we unfortunately it's sort hold of, on there, handsome. Did you just say casting sorcery? It is right. It's like magic. The idea. Let me tell you, Chris. Twenty years ago, if someone had said you would press the screen on on a device and a car would arrive in three minutes and drive you off somewhere, it feels it feels like something that would be or the how about this? You would press a piece of glass on a device and somebody would deliver pot to your house. 
<laughs> not yet in the UK, but right, like the the just the it's magic, crazy. It, the magic. What a charmed life we lead, and uh, and you know the the speed that these things come. So look, I I love my phone. I'm not taking anything away. But what's happened is this desire for humans not to appear bad in other people's eyes, combined with the fact that we can look at our emails, has led to the average working day going up by two hours a day. So the average working day has gone up from seven and a half hours a day to nine and a half hours a day. And that simple change has pushed, has, has readdressed the balance that work used to occupy a certain space in our minds and now occupies something more dominant. It, it lives in our heads. And I, I think probably the evidence suggests that that's not necessarily in service of us doing our jobs better, in fact. So I have this, I'll call it an insight. Maybe it's a theory that I want to bounce off you. Um, so I had this aha a while ago and the aha went like this. I actually had a dear friend visiting from the UK this past summer with his wife and his two kids. And I hadn't seen the kids in a very long time. So they'd gone from being eeny weeny little fuckers to kind of teenage fuckers. <laughs> And and so we live close to the beach. And so my incredible wife organizes this wonderful dinner and we're going to go to the beach and we're going to have hot dogs on the beach and s'mores and we're going to watch the sunset and a fire and all this beautiful stuff. Right. So we go and we do all that. And of course, what are the kids doing the entire time? They're on their phones. And so and I'm bugging them about it. I'm like, hey, uh, sorry to interrupt, but there's this thing here called the ocean. <laughs> right. And, and, and so forth and so on. And they're and they're on their phones. And so I have this aha after that, Bruce, which is that for many of us, particularly some of us of a certain vintage, our, let's just call it our digital life and our physical life. Our digital life is an add-on to our physical life, but our physical life is our primary life. I, I'm beginning to theorize that if you are a certain type of person or of a certain age could be either or a little mix of both that your digital life is actually your primary life and your physical life is your secondary life. And in the case of the kids on the beach, what was going on was um, the sunset and the, and the waves were interrupting their more important life. And so they chose to be with their real life, which is their digital life, as opposed to their secondary life, which is their physical life, in spite of the physical, beautiful uh, nature that we were in. Um, and so I, I, I sort of want to test that theory out. Are we at a point where our digital lives are equal to, or in some cases, greater in importance than our physical lives? It, it poses a really interesting question because while you're saying it, uh, a piece of work that I looked at really springs to mind. There was a piece of work studying the relationship between the dist long distance relationships between unmarried couples. And I think this was like uh, 70,000 unmarried couples or 40,000 unmarried couples. And it wanted to understand, the researchers wanted to understand why do some couples who are living in different cities sustain their relationship in the long term? And why do others fail? And what they discovered was the couples who stayed together were the ones who phoned each other every day to talk about trivial things. And what immediately strikes me, so that's not them sending a 
message to each other. That's not them liking each other's photographs. That's something that's quite analog, something that's almost feels archaic, phoning. Because I think the nuance of what you get by talking to someone on the phone, you get an essence of their mood. You get an essence of how they're really feeling. And so, you know, often that trivial discussion leads to something far more empathetic. What you're saying to me there, though, makes me wonder, wow, is that a relic of a time and a place? Is that a relic of, you know, those couples who are living distance now? But how will that look in 15 years? Here's an aha, right? Uh, Now, look, I'm sure this is mostly propaganda from the online dating industry, Match.com at all. But that said, if you Google around and you look at some of these news reports, you hear things like, at least in the U.S., that approximately half the marriages begin as a digital connection of one sort or another. And then there's propaganda that says that couples that meet via an internet dating site or service tend to be married longer and be happier. Again, I, I don't know how much I believe in that because I'm not sure it's it's Harvard-sponsored research, but it's it proposes interesting ideas. So if you if, if, let's let's accept that there's some directional truth in some of that. I take a step back at it and go, huh, if roughly half the people are meeting the most important relationship in their life digitally, then it, it's got to mean that your, let's just call it digital game with uh, a potential uh, partner or suitor is now more important than your, I would call it your real game. In other words, your ability to connect and communicate with somebody online is actually more important now than your ability to meet them through friends or meet them at a bar or meet them at a party or what, you know, the way people used yeah. to meet. And so what's, what, what, what's going on I don't here? Know. I mean, th- I, I was really struck. I, uh, are you familiar with Stephen Fry? The sort of the British, he's a British wit. He's sort of like what the, the, one of the most British people around, but he, he said something a few years ago. <laughs> Um, one of the most British people around. I yeah, love it. He's just like extraordinarily eloquent. Like, you know, he, he speaks almost in Shakespearean English. But he said something a few years ago and he said, you know, what we can mistake at our peril is that um, a world that moves into uh, on-screen dialogue is is not inferior, but it's different. He said, you know, many of us have found ourselves sitting with uh, an inarticulate, quiet guy or woman who sits in the corner of the room. And and yet then you find yourself presented with a message that they've sent along uh, online or an email they've sent. And it's lyrical, it's eloquent, it's flowing. And in fact, what you've seen in front of you was merely their physical introversion, their awkwardness. And these tools have actually just facilitated them demonstrating themselves in a far more rounded and articulate way. So I I err away from saying that something is better or worse, but, you know, I, I do think it's probably decidedly different. Decidedly different is, is interesting. And sort of the other aha that I've had is, I don't know what the exact right age is. So this is more of a, uh, it's not research-based, but it's just a, something I see. If you're, if you're over the age of, if you're under the age of 40, maybe 35, you're the first generation that for the most part, most of your life has been integrated with the machines. Yeah. And if you're over plus or minus 40, you're the last generation or among the last generations who were 
not integrated with the machines at all or just partially. But we're now we're now at full immersion. What's it going to look like next? You know, because presuming every generation looks back at the previous generation and regards them as the unenlightened ones where, you know, we were living in uh, with archaic, archaic technology and values. What are we going to find ourselves looking back in 30 years saying, can you believe they believed that? Interesting, right? Yeah, I think they're going to say, look, I don't know what, what words they're going to use, but they're going to say, can you imagine we weren't integrated with the machines? Did you ever read that book, which was the uh, the three-body problem? I And look, I don't read a lot of science fiction, and this is um, it's a series of three. I mean, I'm going to lose you now, because it's a series of three Chinese sci-fi novels. I'll down any zebra hole you like here, Bruce. It's a series of three Chinese sci-fi novels, right? So far, so so disinterested. Disclosure: I audio booked them. I, uh, I I audio, but the first one is all about. It's set in in modern times. It's recent book is in fact I think they're adapting it into a an Amazon uh, movie or something. But the the first one um, talks about the uh, the 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 way we we are and and effectively if there's other sentient beings in the universe it's all about if there's other sentient beings in the universe you know currently we seem intent on trying to contact them and yet that presumes that their intentions will be positive and benign towards us rather than thinking okay we can no longer live in our greenhouse gas afflicted mess we're going to go and find someone else's to occupy and so you know the books uh the sort of partly philosophy partly science fiction honestly very well regarded but they uh they they start talking about the worst thing we could possibly do is try and contact other sentient beings because we're presuming they're the good guys and they're gonna just want to come and be friends anyway one thing along the way is the book the first book all happens now the second book skips forward of a few years and the third book i think skips forward a millennium but one of the things they've eradicated in the future is this um this machismo that we that all men exhibit that and you know in the future any performative masculinity is regarded as so toxic that you know it's a relic of the past and so like you know when you sit there and you're thinking it's interesting when you're thinking what are the things that in 30 years we'll look back and shake our head about so that was an interesting perspective for me would would people look back and say the way that we present ourselves be one of the things that the that they think is a relic of the past who knows so we won't present ourselves as in any way masculine is that the thesis here that was the that was the assertion there. Why do we have to eradicate masculinity? <laughs> I don't know. It was just one of the things in the book. I'm not necessarily espousing it. I'm saying when I was confronted with it in the book, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I've never considered that, you know, the extrapolation of us perceiving that there are times where this toxic masculinity might lead to whole societies believing that. I Look, I'm probably going to get myself in a lot of trouble here, but... <laughs> I, 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 the term toxic masculinity can go fuck itself. It, it's ridiculous. There's, there's toxic anything, toxic X, X, Y, there's toxic femininity. There's toxic fill in the blank. There's, there's, everything's on a spectrum. And, uh, you know, would we want a world run by, uh, people who are on the far right only? No. Would we want a world run by people who are on the far left only? 
no, right? So this sort of extreme of one thing or another uh, is rarely good. But I, I reject this whole notion that there's something fundamentally wrong right. with either A, being a man, or B, being masculine, which of course can come from a man or a woman. Sure, but I, I'm not. I'm not saying that so much as there will be something in 30 years that we will look back on now. The you know the civilization in 2020, and we'll say, can you believe they did that? Now he's a surgeon. Is it going to be masculinity though? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it's the clothes we wear. Who knows? But it's so interesting to think. You know, every generation has looked back at the previous generation and scolded them for being. Uh, so so naive and so medieval in their approach, and like it, it, it poses the question: What's today's attitude that tomorrow will look dusty? Well, you talk about uh, maybe this is a direction we're on that uh, you know I wouldn't clearly not support the destruction of masculinity, but what you get on part of the book and you so cite some research was it McKinsey research that was fascinating on diversity and the um the financial implications around uh mm. the financial uh, positive financial outcomes for companies that are diverse uh, or more diverse and so um you know that's one that it seems like a much more interesting conversation to talk mm. about where we're we're beginning to live in a world, hopefully, that is more of a uh, a true meritocracy, where one is judged primarily on one's own abilities and and and, and merit and so forth. But you know, that, it feels like directionally we're moving along that path. But I don't know what what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, very very much so. The interesting thing about um, diversity is that I think all of us recognise that the headlines are. We, we need to respect diversity. Diversity leads us to making better decisions. But then it's very easy for our actions not necessarily to, to match that up. I met one organization. I've, I've been fortunate to meet a lot of companies along the way who told me how they've built their culture. And one organization told me uh, one of the most important things when it comes to us building our culture is that we, we have the van test. And I, I asked what the van test was. And they said, well, when it comes to delivering their, their product with some bottled smooth smoothies, some, some fruit juice, they said the, it involves a lot of three-hour drives. And so our question is, could you sit with someone for a three-hour drive? And if you couldn't sit with someone for a three-hour drive, we don't hire them. Now, superficially, we all recognize that when it comes to us sitting on a three-hour drive, we don't want to sit with a dickhead. We don't want to sit with someone who's got polar opposite views. We don't even want to sit with someone who maybe is completely different to us. However, when that becomes the way that you recruit people, it actually starts to have a, a slightly um, impactful and, and damaging impact on, on the culture you create. And so when you go and meet these organizations, they all look the same as each other. They all think the same as each other. And so I, you know, personally, I want to spend as little time in vans driving somewhere with people I find disagreeable as the next person. But actually, as a, as a recruitment tool, it can be an incredibly damaging one. And I think that when we know the science of working, when we know the science of trying to improve these things, it can help us field test. It can help us check some of our more instinctive 
rash judgments. And I think that was the critical thing for me. I, you know, whether it was the science of laughter I mentioned before, whether it's the the benefits of, of sort of cognitive diversity, what are the ways that we can try and improve the way that we're constructing work, constructing work to make our teams just more enjoyable. So I love all that. And did did you say dickhead somewhere in there? <laughs> did I Forgive hear that? Me. Or did you say it? <laughs> I think, yes, I did. I think you'd sworn before, so forgive the curse word. No, 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 it's awesome. The reason I, I noticed it, this is a complete insane diversion, but why stop now? So my my wife and I have chickens. I absolutely adore them. And so I've become the chicken guy. And so people send me funny chicken shit on the internet. And I recently got this very hysterical video of this guy somewhere feeding all these chickens and a rooster charges at him and pecks his foot and he appears to fall over while he's got uh, this big bag of corn. And the, the, the rooster's name is Kyle. <laughs> and you can see on the camera, Kyle starts charging him and he starts swearing at him and he uses the F word. And he says, you know, I think he says, fuck you, Kyle, a couple of times. And then, <laughs> and then as, as, the, as the rooster kind of backs off, he sort of retorts at him, Kyle, don't be a dickhead. <laughs> and I thought, you don't hear dickhead enough. And sure enough, there it is. Um, but I digress. Uh, you quote here in the book, uh, a rigorous survey in 2015 by McKinsey found a correlation between companies in the top 25% of ethnic and gender diversity and above average financial returns. And that um, when you have radical diversity, your financial returns are 35% higher than on average. That's right. So, and you so know, it's a competitive advantage. Yeah, very much so. And, and you know, th these, these um, in fact, these, these more surveys that back that up, absolutely, you know, the, the more that we can, we can bring that plurality of uh, thinking to problem solving, it seems to pay off. Yes. Well, uh, Bruce, this has been spectacular. I could talk to you for 10 more hours about this, but I, I also do want to be respectful of your time. Uh, anything else you'd like to touch on before we kick out? Well, that was fun. We've covered um, Eddie Murphy and Robin Williams sitcoms. We've covered Chinese sci-fi. We've covered chicken dickheads. We've covered... <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely going to be looking for that video online. There is a video... That I'll send said, it to you. There is a video that sounds remarkably similar and should be paired with it. There's a video recently of, of a group of sheep, and one of the sheep, I think a ram, runs over and, and headbutts the, the shepherd, the, the person sort of shepherding them. <laughs> and uh, the guy goes over, and they all jump in, and they all, they all sort of like this... It's this rebellious overthrow of the shepherd overlord well it's funny that you say that somebody else recently emailed me a story about i, I want to say it was in india but i might be wrong some guy had a cockfighting rooster and was taking that cockfighting rooster to a cockfight and you know they attach razor blades yeah. and horrible things to their feet and it's it sounds absolutely disgusting anyway somehow the the rooster gets loose and whacks this guy, and ultimately the guy bleeds out and dies, and he gets wow. killed by his cockfighting rooster. Wow, that escalated. Well, yeah, and it shows you there's some karma, I guess. Yeah. Every once in a while. Gosh. So did the ram guy deserve to get rammed, I guess is my question. I mean, at least he didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping it clean. Keeping it clean. All right, anything else, Bruce? No, but what fun. We, what fun. Uh, I've really enjoyed that discussion. It was, uh, I would call today, uh, a little bit of ADHD theater, 
<laughs> Hit me up when you're in London and we'll continue the discussion. I, I would love that. And uh, feel free to come back anytime. There's lots more in this book. And I, I know you've, uh, is this your second or third book? Remind it, me. It's, it, actually, uh, it's, the, um, it's one book that's got a slightly different title for the US. So, so my first book was called The Joy of Work in the UK. And it's called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat in the US. Oh, I thought it was your second book. You know, had I known that giving it a different title would cause this confusion, I would never have done it. It's why when it came to naming my children, I named them Child One and Child One. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let me just ask you, so why a different name for the UK version than the US version? Apparently, I, you know, publishing is a total enigma to me, but apparently, you, um, so this book came out 12 months ago in the UK and it's been updated, don't you worry, with plenty of wonderful North American stories. But uh, I was told that the US market doesn't like feeling like it's second to the party. And so they gave it a new title. Unfortunately, it now makes me seem like I've written two identical books. People who pick up the people who be picking up the second one, going, "Ah, this guy, he <laughs> what a bastard!" It's he the same book, just with he a few American case studies. He's milking this. It's like just. Just drawing it out. <laughs> Every song on the record sounds exactly the same. Exactly. That's what's going to happen. People are going to be like, I can't believe this guy. That's so funny. You know, know. it's interesting. Um, with my first book, uh, the subtitle is uh, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. And for whatever reason, you know, different publisher in the UK than the US, the UK publisher was like, we can't have pirates in the title. Like, why? We love pirates and we mean it in a, mm. you know, a playful way. Like, you Absolutely. know, Steve Jobs said, why join the Navy yeah, when you can, you can be, be a, a pirate? pirate. And, Absolutely. And he's not shitting on the Navy. I love our Navy. It's, yeah. it's, it, and it doesn't mean like steal people's, it's not yeah. that. It's, it's a playful pirate. Yeah. Anyway, he said, Absolutely not. And so, um, it looks like we have multiple books because oh. the UK version of our book is called How uh, Rebels, Dreamers, and Innovators. Right. They like, and, and to me, rebel, is, it's a great word, but it's not as piratey as pirate. Yeah, it's not as evocative. It doesn't conjure an image in the same way, does it? Well, there's not a swashbuckly feel to it, right? But but it looks yeah. like we have two different books out now. So, Although it's not a complete different name, I sort of, I guess I'm saying I, I feel your pain a little. <laughs> While I love all my friends in publishing, I am baffled by their industry. I, uh, I, I'm, the, I'm, the whole I'm, thing is baffling, isn't it? It really is. It really is. But that's probably a whole conversation for a different <laughs> podcast. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you so much. I really loved that chat. Thank you. It's been great. Good luck with the launch of the um, same book twice. Milk, exactly. milk, milk it for all it's worth. <laughs> and come back and see me again. Cheers, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Well, there he is, Bruce Daisley. I sure hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation as much as I did. And I uh, want to remind you to visit Lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. And while you're there, you can subscribe to our uh, legendary newsletter. And I'll tell you, we're only going to send stuff we think is awesome. And we will never, ever sell your name to anybody. Um, and if you want to send us email, you can blackhole at lockhead.com, blackhole at L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. All right. We would like to thank Bruce Daisley. Thank you, Bruce. His new book is out. It's a lot of fun. It's a great read. It's called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. 
Uh, the good folks at OneLifeFullyLive.org helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts with Eric Hunley. It's called Unstructured, and uh, much like this podcast, it, it features unstructured, real conversations with Eric Hunley. Now, do your people think your company is awesome? Right now, being in communication with your folks has never been more important. And that's where my friends at Socrates.ai come in. They are a digital communications hub. Imagine your people being able to text or talk any HR question into their phone and get an answer. That's Socrates. Visit S-O-C-R-A-T-E-S dot A-I and get employee awesome. And now's the time to scale you, my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants. Um, they've been social distancing long before social distancing was even a thing. <laughs> Visit bottleneck.online to learn about the power of a virtual assistant. And uh, please don't forget your local hospitals, charities, uh, churches, synagogues, mosques, other places of worship who are trying to make a difference through this crisis. Uh, we're all trying to do everything we can and they need your help. All right, I need to remind you that this Oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed, and we must warn you that clearly this Oddcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. We're produced by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. You can check him out at GOG.show. That's Grumpy Old Geeks, one of my favorite podcasts. Um, technical awesomeness by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Also want to thank Jessica Krakowski for helping to make this episode happen. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Marcus Rust of Roseacre Farms. Sorry, Marky. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Please stay safe. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Uh, be legendary. And until we see you again, follow your different. <laughs>